It's the Michael Bourne Identity. It's episode 12. Uh, I'm James, back with another one of my very cool friends, uh, an actual Hall of Famer, uh, an absolute legend. And, and I know that, that, that if you're listening to this, you're probably an Astros fan and you're going to bristle at first uh, when you hear who it is. But, but trust me, uh, one of the coolest dudes I know. Uh, and I, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be able to uh, talk to him. We, we text and email. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally name dropping here. We text and email, you know, fairly frequently. Uh, one of my good friends, Hall of Famer Eric Nadell. Eric, how are you? Good. How are we doing, James? Yeah, not too bad. You know, it's a uh, you know crazy time of year, and you know, there's all this sorts of you know earthquake-inducing news that happens approximately every ten to twelve minutes, and and <laughs> just try to make it through the next news cycle. I guess. How have you been? That's about it. A little bit uh, unsettled since the uh, insurrection on the 6th of January, <laughs> yes. still waking up every day, you know, not believing that this is the world that we live in. Uh, I had actually gotten away from that for a little while, but uh, I got right back into it last week. Yeah, no, so I've, I tried, cause I, after it, when it, when everything was happening on the 6th, like I, I got on Twitter and I was like, it's not, I don't think it's out of place to say that today will rank up there with, as far as like shocking days in American history, uh, December 7th, 1941, uh, 9-11, like obviously the scope of, of damage and lives lost wasn't that, you know, wasn't nearly anywhere of those levels. But I, I don't, I don't feel like I'm wrong in saying that it, it's up there as far as like, holy crap, like what, what is go, what is actually going on? Am I, do you think I'm wrong? I don't think you're wrong at all. Um, again, based on the fact it's, you know, it's been, over a week now, and I, I haven't shaken it off. Yeah. And, you know, maybe after the inauguration, if we manage to avoid any other um, similar violence, uh, it'll start fading. But the fact that it hasn't faded at all, um, in my mind, in eight days, uh, I, I can't think of too many events that fall into that category. You know, for me, the assassination of President Kennedy was one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 13 years old at the time. and you know, that was one that, that stayed with you for a while. Yeah. How are you, are you able to, cause my thing was like, after, after I said that and I got called, I'm a crazy person and I'm insane uh, on Twitter, I stayed off of Twitter for a few days and, and then I just couldn't, I just, I just couldn't stay away. Are you able to, are, have you mastered the art of unplugging and going and just doing something else? Or do you doom scroll like the rest of us? I'm getting better at it. Um, obviously, during the whole four years uh, of the Trump presidency, I taught myself to back away uh, other than otherwise I'd be in a constant state of outrage all the time. Um, but then, as we had the lead up to the election and you know the couple of months of craziness after the election, it was really hard for me to to stay away. Uh, finally, you know, I got to the point where, I would check Twitter only a couple of times a day instead of constantly. And that's kind of where I am right now, um, which is still not good enough for my mental health. (laughs) Probably what I need to be doing to have the feeling that I'm responsible as a citizen and at least sufficiently informed. That's fair. Yeah. I I, I get on it and I'm trying to limit how often I I tweet uh, just because I, I don't know. I think one of the problems is that Twitter and, and Facebook have made people who 
don't really need to be sharing an opinion. It kind of gives them a platform. And I'm, I'm one of those people as well, but, but it, it just, I just needed to, I don't know. I, I wanted to figure out what was going on without saying anything. So I kind of shadow used Twitter for a few days and then that totally went by the wayside and I got back to the crack addiction that is social media. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I'm just hoping that, you know, in the next administration, it won't be, it won't be as necessary. <laughs> All right. So you grew up in Brooklyn. Um, what is, and I guess we'll start, we'll start off with, with early stuff. What is, who was your favorite player growing up and what was the best Brooklyn Dodgers team? What was your, or I guess, what was your favorite Brooklyn Dodgers team? Well, Sandy Koufax was our hero because he was a Brooklyn kid, uh-huh. um, a Jewish Brooklyn kid. And when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn, he hadn't really established himself yet as a star, but he was still, you know, he was still our favorite guy because of where he came from. Uh, I was six years old and really just starting to get into baseball. So I didn't have that much of an appreciation uh, for the team itself, uh, other than Gil Hodges, who lived around the corner from us. That's cool. So, you know, we were big Gil Hodges fans too. Uh, I still have the the program from the four Brooklyn Dodgers games that I went to the year before they moved. And one of those was Gil Hodges night. It was a doubleheader against the Cubs where in between games, I'm told they gave Gil Hodges a boat and a bunch of other stuff. I'm also told that I fell asleep and didn't see anything. <laughs> um, but I had really just fallen in love with baseball uh, when the Dodgers announced they were moving to Los Angeles. That was a tough conversation for my father to try and explain all of that to me, especially given how infuriated he was uh, and irate that the Dodgers were bailing out on Brooklyn. Um, for me, you know, if I loved Sandy Koufax when he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers, I was going to love him when he played for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the same for Gil Hodges, who went with the team to L.A. So I actually continued being a Dodger fan, uh, at least until we got a National League team of our own and the Mets came in 1962. So I, that was going to be my next question, because, I mean, anyone who's over the age of probably 30, uh, 35 years old that that is from Houston, you know, remembers the pain of of the Oilers leaving and moving to Nashville. But and I know there's a handful of, of people that were like, no, you know, I'm I'm a Titans fan. The rest, everybody else just sort of cursed Bud Adams, name and and tried to move on as, as best they could. So you you stuck with the dot. Was there any any chance of, of being like, well, I guess the Yankees are the only team in town now. I'm going to be a Yankees fan. Or is it anybody but the Yankees? It was, well, it was anybody but the Yankees, pretty much. It was probably in my DNA. And if not, I certainly was um, schooled early to hate the Yankees. You know, they were beating the Dodgers in the World Series every couple of years through the 40s and the 50s. Uh, and my mom just absolutely despised them. My dad didn't have quite the hate for the Yankees that my mother did. But I was taught... <laughs> Yankees. And when we were left with the Yankees as our only team, um, then we basically were just anti-Yankees. We would go to games and root for the other team. I must say, though, that in 1961, when Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris were going, were going after uh, Babe Ruth's home run record, I was rooting for them. You know, you saw a lot of them on TV. They both seemed like good guys. And, you know, I was, while I was not rooting for the Yankees to win the pennant in the World Series that year. I was rooting for them to break the record. And that, that was a little bit odd. But I continued rooting for the Dodgers really until the Mets became good. 
because the Dodgers, you know, were competitive. They were uh, in the World Series, you know, in 63 and in 65 and 66. And the Mets were a last place team. So I didn't really see any conflict in rooting for both teams. And even when the teams played against one another, I would often root for the Dodgers because the game was important for the Dodgers in their pennant race against the hated Giants. And it obviously had no importance for the Mets once you got past the first month of the season. And it was obvious <laughs> they were going to be a losing team again. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. That 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 whole you you care for the first couple of weeks, then you start looking at minor league box scores. That's that's uh, a very fresh memory in in my mind. Now, you we didn't used to have minor league box scores back then, but you did have the announcers telling you about all these great prospects, you know, who are on the way. Right. One of the interesting things about all that is that one of those that they were always talking about was Nolan Ryan. Okay, yeah. We heard so much about Nolan Ryan before he ever came to the big leagues. And then, you know, when he finally did, it was like the second coming for us of Sandy Koufax. Right. Even though, you know, he wasn't from New York, he's from Alvin, Texas, but still he's, he's going to be the strikeout king. He's going to be the next Sandy. And we immediately jumped on board as, as huge Nolan Ryan fans, which, you know, later on in, you know, in my career where I wound up calling two of his no hitters and his 5,000 strikeout, then working for him for a few years when he was the president of the Rangers. Right. Uh, all, you know, quite incredible. One of my favorite things to talk about with Rangers fans, and, and this is sort of how I gauge my Ranger fan friends. Um, and, and this is the, that's the point where I'm like, oh yeah, I've got friends that are Rangers fans, but you know, that, 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 that'll like throw away line. Um, is there anything to the curse of Nolan Ryan that just the, the trajectory of, of the Rangers and the Astros when, when Nolan was in sort of the, not necessarily the front office, but in kind of an advisory role, like, is there anything to that? I don't think so. I, I don't buy it at all. Um, and, you know, the fact is the Rangers, you know, had some really solid teams in 2015, had the best record in all of baseball and in, uh, only to, you know, crap out in the playoffs in 2016 as well. Um, plus, you know, if Nelson Cruz had caught a fly ball and the Rangers had won the World Series, then you know, nobody would be giving a thought to the fact that, you know, after Nolan left, the Rangers you had a few bad years. Yeah, nobody would have cared about it. Was 2015 the year where the Rangers went like 17 and two against Houston? I think that was right. Yeah. I, I, just an unbelievable, and the number of one run games, I remember that there were, because the 2015 was the first time that I was scoreboard watching, you know, basically since 2008, I guess when Hurricane Ike sort of derailed the Astros late, their customary late season charge, but but 2015, that's that was the first time really since maybe 08 and certainly 08, since 2005 that I, it mattered what another team did and, and how that affected my happiness on a day-to-day -day level. But it just felt like there was, it was so many one run games and, and just so many three to two wins that the, uh, the Rangers squeaked out over the Astros that it was actually unbelievable. Like there was one night I remember I couldn't, I had to go get a replacement car key because my wife had already gone to bed and kid was asleep and, and they, they blew another one run game to the Rangers and I went outside and threw my keys in the driveway for like 15 minutes. And I broke my car key uh, and had to borrow my wife's keys for like two weeks until I could get the replacement in. Like that was just, that was an unbelievable, it was kind of, I sort of feel like it's, that's exactly what Rangers fans and Astros fans wanted was both teams like just trading haymakers over the course of an entire season to see who would come out on top. 
Yeah, you know, and Ranger fans, you know, have not had to go through the kind of painful rebuilding that the Astros went through with those three years in a row where the Astros were just horrendous. 2013, by the way, I'm just looking back through my notes, was the year when the Rangers won 17 out of 19. Um, it was, that that's was right. The, that was the year the Astros lost 111 games. Um, that, yeah, the third of the bad years. You know, the Rangers haven't suffered through that. And the fact that the Astros did and eventually, you know, used that to build a, a World Series winning team is something that I think is sometimes lost on Ranger fans who have suffered plenty of pain uh, <laughs> over the years, but certainly not anything like the three-year period that Astros fans had to withstand. You've been, you've been with the Rangers since 1989. Or- 79. That's right. I, I typed that in wrong. Uh, since 79, is there, I'm, I'm sort of to the point where, I mean, and Kami has mentioned to me that it's amazing. She's like, you know, it's amazing how 25 dudes you've never met can have such an, can change your mood from one minute to the next. Um, and just how, if, if the Astros win, it's, it's going to, you know, the next day is going to be going to be all right. If they lose and, and I don't feel like they should have lost, then, then it's not going to be as, as sunny of a day. Does that creep in or, or have you been able to sort of compartmentalize? I mean, you're around the team six, seven months out of the year. How much of an impact do, do the games have on your general enjoyment of life? Right now, uh, zero. Um, there were times, especially when the Rangers were in pennant races, where I would be racked with anxiety, you know, in the few hours before a game when the Rangers were going down the stretch, you know, trying to, trying to win a division was certainly the years that they were in a playoff run. Um, but during the course of the regular season, uh, it's never really been that big a factor unless they happen to be in a huge losing streak or a huge winning streak. You know, one being totally despondent, one being totally euphoric. Otherwise, there hasn't really been that kind of an impact. I remember as a kid, you know, I was a, a huge New York Giants uh, and then New York Jets fan. And, you know, you would stay depressed for four days you know, <laughs> after the loss on Sunday before you started getting up for the next game. I never really went through anything like that with baseball since there's always a game the next day. Mm-hmm. The um, So you used to call minor league hockey games. And we spent, when I was growing up, we spent a little bit of time in Indiana and there was a minor league hockey team that, that we would go that fairly often. One of the, the, one of the things that my dad and I would do, what's the, I guess, is there anything that you miss about calling hockey? The, what, I mean, the, what's obviously the rhythm of the game is different from baseball, but is there anything that you're like, man, that was really cool when, you know, so-and-so happened. Is, was there anything, anything that stands out to you? Yeah, just the overall level of excitement, the energy level of the sport is so different from baseball. You know, there aren't two sports that are more uh, disparate than baseball and hockey when it comes to your job as an announcer. You know, in baseball, it's all about filling the time between pitches. The actual play-by-play in baseball is easy. The defenders are generally in the same place. With shifting now, they're not anymore. It's become a little difficult <laughs> to know who the fielders are when a ball is hit. Um but in hockey, it's, you know, it's constant excitement. It's, you know, there's a shot on the average, you know, more than once a minute, there's going to be a chance for somebody to score. You know, in baseball, you go five minutes, sometimes without the ball 
even being put in play <laughs> sometimes or more. Um, in hockey, you don't have to ever go through that. So the actual rhythm of the game, the energy of the game is something that I miss, but it's physically demanding to call a hockey game. And, you know, at my age, after all this time, uh, with my memory not as sharp as it used to be, I'm not sure I could do an adequate job uh, calling a hockey game. Are there days, I mean, do you have off days where you, you walk in and you're like, I mean, there, there are days where I walk into school and I'm like this, I, I'm not even interested in, in what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, or you get a couple minutes into it and think, yeah, this, this is going to be a, this is going to be rough. Do you have days like that? Well, there are days I feel that way when I get to the ballpark, you know, on a, for a seven o'clock game, uh, I usually get to the ballpark between three and three 30. Okay. Um, manager usually wants to record the manager show sometime between three 15 and three 45. So, you know, I pretty much have to be there ready to go uh, by 3.15 every day. And the days where I really don't feel like going out there or my energy's bad or I'm not feeling good physically or something's bugging me, um, I've got three and a half hours to change my mood before the game starts. <laughs> and that it's very easy to make that happen. You know, it depends partially on who the manager is. Um, Chris Woodward, our current manager, is uh, he is a light in the universe. I just love him. And going into his office every day to start my day, if I'm not in a good mood, changes my mood and puts me in a good mood. Ron Washington was the same way when he was the Rangers manager. And, you know, once I'm at the ballpark, usually there's uh, an attitude of gratitude, as they say, that comes over me, realizing that this is how I make my living, that I'm going to watch a major league baseball game. And usually I'm consciously aware of that just when I walk into the stadium. And it's fun being at the stadium. Sometimes the game is not the most fun. You know, it's talking to the people before the game and the anticipation, uh, talking to the announcers from the other team. You know, I get to see a few times a year unless they're in our division and we see them a lot. You know, I really enjoy that aspect. It's one of the things that, you know, I'll miss the most, you know, if and when I do retire. Um, but Realizing that you're getting paid to watch a Major League Baseball game, uh, it's tough to stay in a bad mood once you get to the ballpark. You mentioned retiring, but but fairly recently you signed a two-year extension uh, with the Rangers, and I was I, I I saw that and I thought, how does how do those negotiations go? I mean, because at this point it's got to be like, all right, Eric, well, you're a legend, you're a Hall of Famer how much do you want and for how long and we'll send it over. Like, is it, is it that just sort of routine at this point? I wish it was, I wish it was that easy and maybe it would be that easy, but hadn't been for the pandemic and the economic situation that baseball teams uh, find themselves in. Now I actually work for the team, not for the radio station. Um, one of the things that I need to figure out is what's the right number of games for me to do. Uh, clearly I don't want to do all of them at this age, there are just too many other things I wanna do during the summer. Um, it's not just needing a mental break from it. It's, it's getting a chance to go to Colorado for a week at a time, mm -hmm. you know, a few times during the summer that, you know, that's important to me. Or being able to go to Red Rocks to see two days of shows, you know, at some point during the summer and having the luxury of being able to do that without counting down. I only have six games off or I only have eight games off. So this past year, when we only wound up having a 60-game season, I was to have had 25 games off had it been a full season. 
Oh, at the end of the year, my contract was up and I started thinking about next year, figuring that if we have a full season, maybe I should stretch that out a little bit. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of other announcers in the same age range who were going through the same thing all the time. And I decided that 35 games, you know, would be nice. And then I was only going to do a one-year contract. That was pretty much uh, my goal to go year by year at this point, because I'm afraid at some point, and it's happened to some of my friends who've done this, you just hit a wall and you say, that's it. I don't want to do it anymore. And I didn't want to be committed, you know, beyond one year if that happens. But then I realized that the 2022 season is going to mark the Rangers' 50th anniversary. And there are going to be all sorts of, as Red Barber used to say, there'll be some big doings out here at the ballpark. I want to be part of the big doings. Yeah. I don't want to miss that. So since that's going to be the case, I might as well sign up for that year too. But at the same time, I asked for additional games off and they agreed to give me 45 games off that year, you know, which gives me plenty of time to do the things that I want to do uh, during the summer, you know, other than broadcast baseball games. Uh, The other thing I'm still waiting to find out, James, is how much I like or don't like working from our new ballpark. You know, I love the park itself. I love the fact that it's air conditioned. It means so much to me at this point to not have to work in a booth where it's over 90 degrees (laughs) and finding it hard to concentrate for three hours. Um, I love going to Houston so much because it's so cool there. And also the booth there is, is one of the prime locations in the American League. Our new stadium, uh, I can't say that about it. It's, uh, the booth is high. Most of the new stadiums are putting the booths up high because they want to use all of the lower locations for luxury suites. You know, and I get it. That's the economics of baseball. But I don't like it. I don't like watching a game from the upper deck. Uh, I don't have the same experience. I really don't enjoy it that much. Uh, but this past year, the first year in our new ballpark, I really couldn't tell how much I like it because there were no fans there. There was no atmosphere. We didn't have any visitors in the booth. I was by myself in a booth for six hours, not even with my partner and the engineer since we were being so you know, COVID compliant. Uh, it wasn't in any way representative of what the experience is going to be like once things return to normalcy or even close to normalcy. So I figure this gives me two years to figure it out and then we'll see. One last Rangers baseball question before we get into the, the real stuff and the, and the music talk. Um, I was reading that when Ruben Sierra came to the Rangers and Ruben Sierra is one of the few players that are, that are not Astros that I can see their baseball card in my head. Like when you, when you say Ruben Sierra or I read Ruben Sierra, like I can see the baseball card in my head. Is it uh, but, that you see, or do you see the one with his stance where he's lifting up his leg and about the swing? that that's the one that's the one I see so um but when he came to the Rangers uh you decided to learn Spanish and and that's really over the course of the last you know 10 months or so I thought you know I I I I teach you know knowing where I teach and and I coach soccer I'm the I'm the only coach that doesn't know how to speak Spanish I need to fix that how long did it take you to become and now you're like fluent in Spanish how long did that take you and and how did you do it It took a while and it's an ongoing battle. You know, I started by taking private lessons uh, twice a week for an entire off season. I got a set of Berlitz at that time in 1990, they were cassettes. 
I got a set of Berlitz cassettes and listened to them constantly in my car uh, on my cassette Walkman on planes. Uh, I made sure that every day I was at the ballpark, I tried to talk to someone in Spanish, whether it was Ruben Sierra or one of the other um, Puerto Rican players we had at the time, or at that time we had a Puerto Rican trainer and a Puerto Rican Spanish announcer. And they were more patient than the players talking to me in slow motion Spanish. Uh, but I practiced over and over again, and that's the only way to do it. You know, I listened to Spanish radio uh, songs and news and, you know, tried to, you know, learn things that way. And when the off season came, I took private lessons again, and I took some group lessons. And then eventually, I think after two years, I started traveling in Latin America, first with somebody who could be a translator for me, and then after a couple of visits, doing it on my own, where I was totally immersed uh, in the Spanish experience. But it was still at least five years before I considered myself adequate, and at least 10 before I was even an intermediate. And that took a trip to Venezuela, where I actually went to language school for two weeks, for six hours every day, and then went to a winter league game at night with a bunch of scouts who didn't speak English. <laughs> then I would go back to the hotel and my brain would explode and I'd wake up the next day and do the same thing. But really that's what it, it took. And it, it's a lot like skiing. You do lose it if you don't use it. Mm -hmm. um, so in the off season, I lose a lot of my Spanish dexterity, if you will. And usually within a couple of weeks before spring training starts, I will make a trip to Latin America somewhere and spend you know, 10 days to two weeks in total immersion to kind of get my Spanish chops back. That's really cool. So I, yeah, that, I, but it, I've, I've noticed, you know, when, when everything was just shut down and I, I, you know, there wasn't a whole lot going on because everyone's trying not to get COVID. Um, it was going a whole lot better for me. And then things, you know, other things kind of got in the way and the schedule got crowded and I haven't done Duolingo as much. Like I've lost a decent amount just in the last couple of months from, from where I was. So th that's good to know that it's, it's a longer process than, and I'm not just a moron, which I, which is probably true as well, but. Um, well, and you do need, you need to both speak it and listen to it. And right. oddly enough, I'm one of the few um, language students who can speak the language much better than I can understand it. Uh, and I speak it well enough that Spanish speakers tend to assume that I can then understand them at their <laughs> native uh, rate of speed and their native dialect, which is definitely not true. So <laughs> I, I'm my own worst enemy sometimes by speaking it so well, people assume that I also understand it to that degree and I don't. And I'm constantly having to make people stop and go slower, re-tell me what that word is because they left out the letter S both times it appeared and I couldn't <laughs> the word. It's, it's tough. And it's one of the reasons, even though there are great programs now with Duolingo and Rosetta Stone, um, it's not the same as having a conversation with somebody uh, and having them correct you. If you can get people to do that for you, people are always reluctant to do that because they appreciate your trying. Um, and also, you know, being able to stop them and ask them, you know, what did that mean? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I read it way better than I, I'm more confident reading it than I am certainly speaking it. And then understanding, cause I mean, my students, you know, it's just a, a, 
200 miles an hour. Uh, and I'm like, I, you got to start all the way over, bro. And, and you know, luckily there, I don't come across too many of my students that are Spanish only. Um, you know, I, I hand maybe one or two every, every year, but you know, the, the ones that play soccer, you know, they're, they're, they're manageable in both. And, uh, but yeah, I, I have to tell them to slow down all the time. But again, I think they appreciate that I'm at least giving it a shot. So a white dude with long hair that's trying to learn their language, I think. It, yeah, and, and the players like it too. You know, I think I kind of have an in with a lot of the Latin American players on our team because when they first come to us and they don't speak much English, you know, I'm able to speak Spanish better than they speak English. That usually changes pretty rapidly. <laughs> they're, they're forced to live, you know, in an English speaking world here for six or seven months out of the year. So you, okay, it was, you're a huge music guy. And, and that's not surprising given that you grew up in New York and it's, you know, late fifties, early sixties, um, just sort of the scene that was coming out of Greenwich Village. But Clint Hurdle played a role in your music fandom. How did that come about? Because I would not peg Clint Hurdle as like the guy who has his finger on the on the pulse of the music world. It's amazing. Clint Hurdle knows more about different types of music than anybody I know. <laughs> and he was our hitting coach with the Rangers in 2010. And uh, Jack Corrigan, who's the radio announcer for the Colorado Rockies, where Clint had been the manager, um, emailed me when, when Clint signed as the Ranger hitting coach. And Jack and I had, had talked a lot about music over the years. And he said, you're you are going to be in heaven. He says, just start talking to Clint about music. And I did first time I saw him in spring training. And he was a guy, I don't know if he still is like this. I don't think he sleeps a whole lot. <laughs> and he uses those ex, those excess hours to listen to music and discover new music. Uh, back then in 2010, there were still record stores where you could go in and listen to music, put on headphones, you know, and pretty much listen to anything in the store. And Clint would do that. And he would buy stacks of CDs on every road trip. And he'd listen to the CDs and the ones he really liked, he'd pass on to me. That's and cool. From those CDs that he handed me, you know, I found, you know, a number of groups that I had not been familiar with or artists, as it turned out, you know, who I would then listen to. And then sometimes in some cases reach out to, you know, most notably being Daphne Willis, uh, who I was blown away by after Clint gave me one of her CDs that he found at Rasputin Records in San Francisco. And I, you know, I, I heard the CD, I loved it. I reached out to her on her website, basically sent her a fanboy letter and she responded and it turned out she was coming to play in Dallas uh, right after the season ended. And we went down and saw her play in front of eight people, you know, in a, <laughs> in the opening bell uh, coffee house in Dallas. And I said, you need to be playing in front of more people. And I, I got my friends who had just opened up the Kessler Theater as a music venue to book her as an opening act. And everybody loved her. And, you know, she stayed at her house with our with her band and we became close. And, and now we call her our fake daughter. And, <laughs> uh, it's been really fun, you know, to watch her career and watch how she's developed both as an artist and, and as a writer. She's had actually had a lot more success as a writer than she has as a performing artist and also to get to know her really as a, as a member of our family. And, and it's all because of Clint. I would never, I would never have made that connection. For a while, you were the music director for the Vagabond is, and I, obviously COVID uh, 
you know, put a put a pause on live music. And I that that's the thing that I'm looking forward to most is is you know going to a baseball game and then going to a concert. Um, what was your favorite? So you would like book you would book bands to come play at the at the Vagabond in Deep Ellum, right? Yeah, Vagabond was actually on Lower Greenville across from the Granada Theater. Yeah, and I had a small interest in this bar, as did Joe Ely and uh, Terry Allen and Butch Hancock. And I was given the job of booking the bands. It, we held about 100 people, so it was a perfect little venue. And as a result, I got much more immersed in the local music scene than I had ever been. Um, needing to book artists who you didn't have to pay a lot of money to for a small venue like that, but who needed the gig and wanted the gig. And if they didn't have to travel, obviously it made things a lot easier. So uh, I got to know firsthand, you know, most of the really good singer songwriters and smaller bands, you know, in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And then we brought people up from Houston and we brought people up from, from Austin and it was great. I just loved doing it. And unfortunately the economics of running a bar slash restaurant um, didn't work out the way we hoped they would. Uh, the bar was doing okay, but there was an offer to basically to buy it uh, from a guy who didn't want to have live music in there, since live music really wasn't a money maker. We had gotten to the point where it wasn't a money loser, but it mm -hmm. wasn't a money maker. And the guy who was the majority owner needed the money, and he sold it, and that was the end of my booking uh, at the Vagabond. Uh, unfortunately for me, because I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I got to meet a lot of artists and, and make a lot of connections within the music industry it was, it was really fun. All right, let's do, let's do music pop quiz. And uh, this is going to be one, two, three, five questions. And uh, I'll, I'll let you answer, then I'll, then I'll answer and we'll compare, we'll compare notes. Uh, so first up, band you hate. I don't really hate any band, but I don't like any of the bro country guys. The oh, that's a good Brody call. Keith and and Jason Aldean and you know all those all those guys. Forget about it. I don't like heavy metal. It's just a personal taste. I'm not saying those bands are bad. I just don't like them. But there's a band that, even during its era, when I liked most of the bands of its type, I just couldn't stomach is Sticks. Okay. I didn't like the guy's voice. He was whiny. I didn't <laughs> like that lady song. I didn't like that babe, babe song, that Lorelei song. And they constantly had a hit record that was being played uh, ad nauseum. And so that's the one band that, you know, I could come close to saying that I hate. How about that's, you? that's a good one. That, that, and that, oh, that, that is a good one. Um, mine is red hot chili peppers really I, I i don't know what it is there's one song and i don't know if you've got bands that that when they come on xm or they come on the radio you're like oh no and you change the channel but but or if there's a band that you otherwise just cannot stand but they have one song and, and that one song is danny california and i don't know what that's i don't know why that song rings my like because it's the whole like with the states and the rhyming you know yeah. Indiana and Alabama. I'm like, oh, come on. I just, I cannot stand red hot chili peppers. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. So it, it's not the voice. 
It's not the voice. I, it's just yeah. the general. And I, I, I don't understand it because I kind of like that sort of laid back. I, I like bass and I like drums and mm-hmm. uh, the guitar player is really good. I, I, I cannot explain why I do not like Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I, I, maybe it's the whenever, you know, I was sort of getting into MTV under the bridge was on all the time, just constantly. You couldn't get away from it. And, and I just, I don't know. I, I just couldn't do it. So that's, that's mine. Uh, band you think is overrated. Um, I'm going to go with fish on this. And I know I'll have a lot of haters based on that. I just don't get it. And it's not that I'm entirely against the jam bands. I really like string cheese incident. I really like trampled by turtles. I just never get into any fish songs. I just, I just, I I don't know. They just never hook me. And then they're going to play them for 18 minutes. I certainly (laughs) I certainly don't like it, um, and you know when I'm when I'm at a show, I don't want any band playing anything for 18 minutes. You know, right. I'm, a, I'm a Grateful Dead fan. I love their records. I don't like their shows. I've been to several of them. I don't want to hear a half hour version of Trucking. You know, <laughs> five minutes is is just fine. Um, but then if I don't, if I'm not captured by the songs to begin with, as in the case of Fish, and I know they're great musicians and all that. But I just, I don't care for the songs and I, I don't like the whole thing. And I, and I certainly don't get the whole cult that surrounds. Yeah, no, I, I think that has more to do with, with recreational drug use that, that I don't partake in. I think that's part of, that might be part of it. So I don't know. Um, no, that's a good, that's a good one. Cause I'm trying to think like I, there is one fish song that I like and it, it's about four minutes long. Like I, I'm the same, I'm the same boat. Like the only the only song I want to hear that lasts more than 10 minutes is Love Lies Be- Bleeding and Funeral for a Friend from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Like that's the only song that I will willingly listen to mm-hmm. that is more than 10 minutes long. I um, remember as a kid when everything was under three minutes on the radio and Light My Fire was like the, the first hit that went five minutes long. And then you had MacArthur Park, which I think was like seven. And then Inagata DeVita uh-huh. opened the door to me, it opened the door to the jam bands. Um, and I, I wasn't crazy about any of that. Yeah, no, that, that's a really, and, and, and so I'm going through one of my new year's resolutions is to listen from start to finish the Rolling Stone top 500 albums of all time. Uh, and they came up, they, they updated their list like in September. So it's a fairly recent list. And, you know, I think I've listened to I'm on like number 474 or something like that. I started with 500 and just sort of make my way through. Um, but there was like a, a Kinks album that every song was was like a minute, 52 seconds, two minutes, three. I'm like, what is happening? Like, that's not, I, I'm, I'm fine with short songs, but that's, I don't know. That that's, that's, that's what stood out to me so far. And who do you have as your most um, overrated band? My most overrated band, The Smiths. I, I cannot understand, I understand that they are a big influence on a lot of bands that I do appreciate, but, and one of the things that I'm, I'm worried about with this Rolling Stone list is they want me to listen to way too many Smiths albums and they want me to listen to way too many Kanye West albums. Um, But I just don't, I just, I, I don't get it. And maybe it's just the, it's their influence that what is what props them up, but I can't do it. 
you know, where, where do you stand regarding U2 and being overrated or not overrated? Because I know when this question is asked, uh, I'll, I'll see U2 lobbed out there every now and then as, as an answer. That U2 and the police, because I think it probably has to do with Bono and Sting themselves. <laughs> um, but both of those bands tend to get mentioned when the subject of overrated bands comes up. I don't know that I agree with either one, but I know it's, it's a popular choice. I am a I am a straight up U2 fanboy. Uh, they were U2 is the first band that I actively I would go to record stores in Houston or if I was in Dallas and I there were a couple times when I was growing up that I had a chance to go to England and I'd go to record stores over there and look for singles that you couldn't buy in the U.S. I'm trying to oh. complete the discography. So and I U2 is one of those bands that I've seen. I haven't seen them. They're not the band that I've seen the most number of times, but it's it's like five or six uh, times that I've seen U2. So I'm a I'm a huge U2 fan, uh, and which is usually a, a point where someone chimes in with with a special brand of mockery. And I at this point I I understand I get it. Bono's kind of insufferable, uh, but uh, I, I I don't know. They're they're in my they're they're in my top bands of all time. How about Police and Sting? Yeah. I don't mind the police. They're, they're fine. I won't listen to every song that I come across, but there are more songs of theirs that I like that I, than, than I don't, I don't know. How about you? Yeah. I like, I like them. You too. I had a bad concert experience. The one time I went to see them play, they played at the Fort Worth convention center and the sound was just too loud. The, the, the hall could not handle their sound. It was too loud and it was somewhat distorted and they never fixed it. Or at least they didn't fix it in the first hour because we left after an hour. Oh wow! Was terrible. I walked out on YouTube the only time I saw them, and I've never, I've never gone to see them again. But <laughs> you know, I don't turn their songs off when they come on the radio, and you know, I think a lot of them are brilliant. So you know, I can't say that I dislike them or feel they're overrated. I just, I just had a bad concert experience, so they're not one of my favorites. I had a, a, a bad concert experience with, I got free tickets and I felt like I was cheated uh, with Lenny Kravitz in, in Nashville. It was, and I don't know if he was just off that night, but it, if, if, if my memory serves me right, and this would have been 2002, uh, the concert was about 75 minutes and about 25 minutes of it was American Woman. And <laughs> it was just, it was, it was not, that was the worst concert I've ever been to. So would you two, would you two be your, that, that was your, the worst concert you've been to? That's the worst concert experience that I've had. Yeah. It's hard to overcome that when, when that's in your head, that's hard to, like, I don't even listen to Lenny Kravitz anymore just because of that one terrible <laughs> hour and 15 minutes. It's definitely the earliest I ever left a show, but I mean, our ears were hurting. We were just, and it was, well, you know, it was 20, at least 20 years ago, maybe longer. So it's not that, you know, we were old guys then and just couldn't <laughs> handle anything loud. All right. Band that you think is underappreciated. There are a few. Um, I think Elvis Costello is tremendously underappreciated. Um, to think of all the different genres that he has written in and performed in, when you go back to where he was kind of punk with this year's model and, um, and Radio Radio and and watching the detectives and all those songs back then. And then the incredible pop songs like Veronica and Every Day I Write the Book and uh, uh, Bad Year for the Roses. He's done classical albums. 
he did a country album. His version of the song, uh, Tonight the Bottle Let Me Down, is absolute brilliance. I love him. I saw him do an acoustic show um, two years ago here in Dallas at the Majestic. It was, it was just wonderful. So I think he's very underappreciated. Um, you mentioned the Kinks earlier. I think they're underappreciated. I think they deserve to be in the same echelon with the Beatles, the Stones, and the Who. Okay. Um, and no, they couldn't come to the U.S. for a while. They, you know, they had some sort of visa problems and everything, and, and they probably missed a chance. But I think Ray and Dave Davies had as much of an impact really on, on other bands as anyone. But um, the group that I think is the most underappreciated is Bare Naked Ladies. Okay. Those guys, I've, and I've seen them at least 10 times in concert. They were rapping before anybody else was rapping. And they were doing it spontaneously. Those two guys, Ed and Steven, in concert, would just start rapping about the city they were in or what they had for lunch or the, the stuffed animal that somebody just threw up on the stage. Um, their songs are incredibly clever. They have great pop hooks, wonderful harmonies, and they have that joy of performing that not all bands have. You know, they relate to each other and they relate to the audience. And, you know, they were actually pretty big worldwide stars for a while when they had the major hits, um, The Apartment and... Uh, One Week, One week. And yeah but they've got they've got 10 albums out and every one is great they put an album out last year and even though Stephen Page has left the group and they don't have you know the the original lead singer it's still fabulous I saw them in concert last year and they were wonderful I'll go see them every chance I get I, I think they're just grossly underappreciated that's a good one uh while you were talking I was there were a couple of things I was like when you said Elvis Costello I thought oh, I need to step this up because that's that's a really good one and, and when I was maybe 12 my cousin got me an elvis costello greatest hits album for christmas and he thought it he thought it was a joke like he thought i'd be like this is a this is going to be a really funny gift and it turns out that i freaking loved it and and i'm a i'm a big elvis costello fan um a couple of years ago we saw um it was the tour where where spoon opened for cage the elephant who opened for beck Whoa. And, and that might, that, that's not the best concert I've ever been to, but, but Cage the Elephant is one of those bands that if they're playing within 300 miles, like we will drive, like we'll, we'll make that drive and we'll get a hotel. Cause that was just a phenomenal concert. Um, as far as underappreciated, I, I think Cage the Elephant falls, falls there. Um, I'm going to go, there's two Canadian bands before I land on my, on my main Tragically Hip is is extremely underappreciated. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of those discoveries where it was, I was at a Blockbuster Music in Abilene, uh, just trying to kill some time and came across it. And I was like, this is the Phantom Power album. That was the, the first one I heard. Okay. So Tragically Hip is, is one of my picks. The Sam Roberts Band. I don't know if you ever heard of Sam Roberts Band. Sam Roberts, I'll write it down. The, it's just straightforward. I think they're from like Newfoundland. And if they'd been from New Jersey, I think they would have been, you know, mega stars. But every single album they have is is solid. And so I'm a I'm a big Sam Roberts band guy, but no one's ever heard of them. Um, my main underappreciated is someone that we both know uh, as far as just the level of the quality of album with the instrumentation, with the lyrics, 
for me, the most underappreciated band is the Pernice Brothers. Yeah, they're, they're great. And I don't know. This part of the country, nobody knows. Yeah, I don't I don't know anybody who has ever, I've, I've never run into somebody, you, know, you ever heard of the Pernice Brothers? And they said yes. Like, I've never come across someone, um, unless well, it's someone who's plugged. Is at the radio station at KXT, I was up there one day, and the, a couple of the, the disc jockeys there actually knew of them. But, but you're right. None of my friends ever heard of them. And I actually had never heard of them either until I got involved, you know, in the email chain that we're both in uh, with Joe Pernice and, and a bunch of other fabulous musicians who are into baseball. Uh, I didn't know about them until then. Yeah. And I only came across them because we were about to get on a cruise in my in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and I stopped at a bookstore and and saw this this like alt country magazine called No Depression. Uh, and I, I got it and it, it just happened to be that, that Joe was on the cover and they had a big old, you know, cover story on him. And I, when we got back, I tore apart Miami and Fort Lauderdale looking for, for a Pernice Brothers album and in the era of, of, you know, Sam Goody and, you know, whatever the music stores were, they, they, I completely struck out and had to just get it on the internet. But, but that's my, that's my main number one underappreciated band. That's a great one. You know, and on the subject of Tragically Hip, if, any of the listeners have not seen the documentary about their last tour uh it is a must must see absolutely heartbreaking it's it's unbelievable of all the the music documentaries and i've seen dozens of them and i watch every one i come across uh, that's the one probably that had the most impact on me uh, yeah i need to i need to i need to check that out again it's, it's been a little bit since i've since i've seen it i need to check that out uh a, just a band that you straight up love um, right now, there's a few, but I love the Shins. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the band that I'll go to see 300 miles or farther, you know, just to try and make sure I see them every year. They don't play that many shows. And James Mercer, he's such, a, he's such an elusive, strange cat. Some years he's playing with Broken Bells, in which case I go see them. You know, I've had the opportunity to see them a couple of times, and they're wonderful. Um, the lyrics are so... Uh, kind of surreal you know mm-hmm. you're you're trying to figure them out um the songs are a little bit kind of a little bit spacey but they're still pop songs and they're haunting in their own way and uh i just i just love it I, every experience that i've had with them has been great so there was a there was a i spent two years looking for a specific song by gorillas uh, and, and I forced myself to listen to way more gorillas than, than anyone should really have to, but it was cause I was looking for this one song and then I found out it was actually a broken bell song and it would have taken me about 15 minutes, but, wow. um, I, I really enjoy broken bells. Have you heard the, the danger mouse, the gray album? No. Okay. That's uh so danger mouse is the other guy in broken yeah. bells. Um, and back when Jay-Z released the Black Album, um, he took, and Jay-Z, and I guess in an effort to prove that he was the greatest rapper alive, Jay-Z released just the, the acapella version of the Black Album. So what Danger Mouse did was he took, he, he started sampling the White Album and picking out the instrumentation from the White Album that he could, and he, he basically did a mashup with the Beatles white album, but with Jay-Z rapping over it from the black album and it's called the gray album. And it's, it's one of it's, you can get it for free uh, 
on, I, I can send you the link, but the, there's a, I have it bookmarked just for whenever I want to uh, listen to it, but it is, it is phenomenal. Check it out. All right. So I guess mine, mine is probably another one though, because another band that nobody knows that is somewhat similar to the shins in the vibe and the sound and they're called blind pilot. Okay. They're, they're from Portland. Um, they're categorized like the shins. They call them a folk rock band and they don't, they don't put out a whole lot of music. I think they, they put out three albums probably in 12 years and they tend to be on the dark side but very melodic mm-hmm. and I've seen them in concert twice they all play multiple instruments and they're constantly switching around uh taking turns playing different instruments it's it's really impressive um but that's it's another band i'm just in love with blind pilot that's cool i i, I like them i know a couple of their songs but i need to go back and and listen to i'm trying to get back to listening to albums start to rather than just compilations or i like make a playlist uh, every month on Spotify. Like I'll try to just go random and then pick songs that I like and put them in a separate playlist. And I've got like four years worth of playlists of, of doing that. I need to get back to just the albums. Um, I guess the band that I absolutely love and one of those bands that can do no wrong is, for me is Spoon. Uh, I, I love Spoon and, you know, having gotten a chance is one of the few times that just because we were, it was that two summers ago we were, my dad lives in Sugarland and the concert was in the woodlands. Uh, and I often forget just how huge Houston is. And, and we didn't get there. The show started, it said on the ticket, it started at six. And I was like, no show ever starts when it says it's going to start on the, on the ticket. And we, we, we ended up getting there about 10 after six because it took two and a half hours to get there. And I told Kane, I was like, we could have almost been home by now. Like, I mean, that, that, that's how long we've been in the car. And, um, and they played, they started right at six. We missed the first couple of songs, but just getting a chance to see that. I've wanted to see them for so long. Uh, getting to see them, it was, it was, they're, they're just as good live as they are on, on their albums. I've never seen them live, but everything they've ever done, I've liked. It's, yeah. All right, That's band cool. that made you fall in love with music. When I was an infant and a toddler and starting to, have a, an awareness of what was going on around me. There was always music playing in our house. My mom was a diehard Sinatra fan, and she also loved show tunes. And back then it was South Pacific and Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, all of which I liked. And then one day, I'm pretty sure it was 1957, where I would have been about six. My sister brought home a 78. This is like a dinner plate, you know, <laughs> both in diameter and in thickness. And it was Elvis Presley. And it had Hound Dog on one side and Don't Be Cruel on the other side. Don't Be Cruel was the song that hooked me. That's cool. And after hearing that song, I was a rock and roller forever and ever. Uh, I'm pretty sure the next record he put out, we started buying every record that he would put out and he, they came out about every two months. Uh, Love Me Tender. I remember we had that one. We had uh, Jailhouse Rock. We had Heartbreak Hotel. They were just one after another after another of Elvis. And in the meantime, um, we were starting, just starting to think about buying albums. 
And I remember when I finally took the plunge and bought an album, it was the first Buddy Holly and the Crickets album. I was in love with the song, That'll Be the Day. Uh-huh. No, Peggy, Peggy Sue was the bigger hit, but That'll Be the Day was the other song that really hooked me, you know, in those early years, age seven or, or eight. So I'd say those were, those were the two, it was Elvis and it was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. That's, that's, I can't argue with that. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good list. Um, I was a, probably no surprise, I was a weird kid. And, and my, my first, for some reason, I was, a, I was the, the only 12-year-old in the United States that knew all the words to Eric Clapton's Mainline Florida. Like, I was a huge Eric Clapton fan. And I do not, exp- I, I cannot understand what, what it was. Um, and, but there's not, I don't, I don't have like a, a point where, I think, well, it was this Eric Clapton song. Like, I just, I just sort of, I just sort of liked it. Um, and while the first actual CD I ever bought was Weezer's Blue Album, uh, when, when I heard Mysterious Ways by U2, and I would have been 11 or 12, I think, maybe, maybe 13. Um, that was where I was like, this is the band. Like, that, this, I've been waiting for this, you know, all my 13 years uh, that I've been alive. So I guess mine is, and, it's a, and again, that's why I'm the I'm the U2 apologist uh, in pretty much any room I'm I'm in, unless Bono's in the room, then he'd be the bigger one. Um, still a huge Eric Clapton fan. I appreciate it, but it's been it's been a really long time since I've gone out of my way to listen to an, an Eric Clapton song. So have you talked to our friend Rhett about Eric Clapton. I have not, but I will. Does he have a good Eric Clapton story? Make a point to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I can't wait. Uh, guilty pleasure. Uh, the, we'll do guilty pleasure, and I've got one more question for you, and then I'll let you go. I've got a lot of guilty pleasures. I do too. Uh, I, I I'm a sucker for female singers and female pop. I like Megan Trainer. Uh, I really like Megan Trainer. I like <laughs> Lady Gaga. I like Christina Aguilera. I like the Camila Cabello. Um, I like the boy bands. I like BTS. <laughs> but I think my guiltiest pleasures are some older country bands. My number one guilty pleasure is Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. Okay. I will listen to Buck Owens anytime, and it always puts a smile on my face. I just love it. And I also happen to be, still am, a huge fan of Shania Twain. All right. And that's that's out, a good one. She put out an album last year and I bought it and I loved it. <laughs> I, I love her voice. I love what she does with her voice. And, you know, I missed her for so long while she was off having kids or whatever she was doing when she disappeared for 10 or 15 years. Uh, so glad that she's back. I've never seen her live. Um, she is one of the artists who I'd really like to see live who I've never seen, um, which is another interesting question for for discussions like this you know yeah you've seen in concert who you want to see but i would say i'd list those two as probably my biggest guilty pleasures would be buck owens and shania twain that's a good list i was thinking i was thinking about this one uh and i have a playlist of of just guilty pleasure and i'm i'm sort of in the same boat my my, kami will tell me she's like well of course you like this song it's sugary sweet cavity inducing pop music or (laughs) it's complete like sad bastard bonnie prince billy uh, like those are my two, those are my two genres, but I guess my, my, my guiltiest pleasure is, I mean, 
obviously I'll get on board with, with Katy Perry. Uh, and you know, um, Shakira is one of, I, I listened to one of her albums on this Rolling Stone list in the last couple yeah. of days. And, and I listened to this whole album. I was like, this is really good. Like I, I know, but like Nelly Furtado, like I'm, I'm down with that. Um, I do like Justin Timberlake, but my two biggest guilty pleasures are probably uh, Wham slash George Michael and ABBA. Like I will, I will listen to the hell out of ABBA. I have, and I, I don't even know that it's a, it's a, if I don't feel guilty, I don't know if it's a guilty. I just, it's just a pleasure. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. So those are, those are my Where two. Where are you on the Mamma Mia album? How are you uh, on the Mamma Mia album? My, so my wife was in a, they, at the Civic Theater, they did Mamma Mia. And so I went and saw that a couple of times and, and it was, it was good. I, I enjoyed it. The movie didn't ring my, it didn't ring my bell. Uh, so I'm, I'm an ABBA purist, I guess. So. I like George Michael. In fact, um, Faith, I think is just a spectacular song. Yeah. And the Freedom 90, that's the one that's the six and a half minute long, mm-hmm. but it's, that's, there was uh, at our church, there were a few times where I'd have to, I'd have to lead singing uh, and I don't know if, if anyone else ever did, but that, that was my warm up on the drive over to, uh, to church. I'd warm up for church with, with George Michael. So just to get my voice, uh, ready to go. Uh, all right. Last one. And it's not music, but it, it sort of brings it full circle. Uh, you are the recipient of, is it 2014 that you got the Ford C Frick award? Right. So hall of fame legend, uh, Eric Nadell, what is your favorite spot in Cooperstown? Oh, well, the Ford Frick wall is my favorite spot. <laughs> you know, I grew up listening to Mel Allen and Red Barber. And they were the first two winners of the Frick Award. It was the only year that it was given to two recipients since they you know, were inseparable uh, in the minds of, of the selectors. Um, just to, to see, and even before I was on that wall. That was still my favorite place to go. I've been a fan of radio baseball, you know, since I can remember. And to see the people who are my idols up there, not just them, but the two guys who I grew up with listening to on the Mets broadcast, Bob Murphy and Lindsey Nelson. You know, they've both won the award. Ernie Harwell, who turned out to be a, a great mentor to me, as did Dave Niehaus, as did Marty Brenneman, as did Jack Buck, all of these people who I eventually got a chance to meet. Um, so just going in there and seeing all those guys together on there, for me, that's, you know, that, that's as good as it gets. Do you, do you, do you go back every year? No, I haven't gone back since I won the award in 2014. Um, partially because for me to go back there as hard as it is to get to Cooperstown, you know, it really involves missing at least three games to do it right. I don't like being there particularly hall of fame weekend because it's, too mobbed uh, and you know I don't enjoy it nearly as much as, as going at off hours. When I was in summer camp as a teenager, uh, probably age 13 and 14, uh, we went to Cooperstown to see the Hall of Fame game. Mm-hmm. And that was always a lot of fun because there were, there were more people there than usual, but not the kind of throngs that you have on induction weekend. And those are some of my best memories is going to Doubleday Field you know, and seeing seeing those games played, and then you know having a few hours to to wander around the Hall of Fame and the museum. 
That was my second, the second year that I worked there, the second induction that I, that I worked up there was the Ripken Gwynn uh, induction. And that was, I mean, I, 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 you know how small Cooperstown is, but I mean, it's literally one traffic light and, you know, two main streets, but there were 80, 85,000 people there. Uh, and it's sort of a go to the grocery store on Wednesday because you are not going to move your car until the following Monday. Uh, and one of the benefits of that whenever induction weekend would come was that Verizon would actually bring more cell phone towers uh, and we could use our phone inside. Like there were, because uh, oh. the cell coverage is so bad through, well, it used to be, uh, it was so terrible throughout the year that if it wasn't induction weekend, um, we had to, you know, talk outside. And, it, you know, there, I remember a couple nights where my mom calls me and I go stand, I'm like, mom, it's, it's 25 below. I, I, I'm, we're okay. I'll call you from work tomorrow when I can actually get, get coverage. So Cooperstown's a weird place, but, and it's been a while since I've been back, but it's still, it's, it's still pretty special to go. My runner up would be the uh, veranda at the hotel Otisaga. That's such a beautiful hotel. One of those rocking chairs looking out at the lake. That's, that's about as peaceful as, as it gets. Eric Nadell is the radio uh, play-by-play man for the hated Texas Rangers. Uh, although this has been extremely lovely and I've, I've really appreciated your time and uh, thank you so much. And hopefully we get a full season in, uh, in, in 2021. Thanks James. Hopefully we actually get to see you in person, either at Globe Life Field or at Minute Maid. I need to check out, I need to check out the new ballpark. So I'll, I'll let you know when we're making a trip up that way. Sounds good.